You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Schubert's trio proposes ideally the journey of a man, as it were, the journey of every man, who appears on the scene of the world, a young man bouncing with positive drive. From the start, the music presents him bursting with energy and determination to get on in life. Then it is as if, as time passes and circumstances change, problems, uncertainties, and suffering begins to surface. In a second movement, that vital drive is challenged, tested, interrogated as to its energies and its hopes of fulfillment. Here emerges one of the most sadly beautiful melodies of our musical tradition. It expresses the desire to get to the heart of things, and at the same time, the awareness of the inadequacy of the means available. Hence, its agonizing sadness. When a man finds a beautiful melody, he wants nothing else. This is the characteristic of heaven. You will be unable to want anything else. This is happiness, being unable, being unable to desire anything else because you are fulfilled.
Not bad. <laughs> there's beauty in Schubert. There's thirst for beauty in Schubert. There's beauty in Giussani's words. There's thirst for beauty in Giussani's words. There's thirst for beauty and love and justice in our heart, the core of the religious sense. But there's also beauty in friendship, in this impossible unity, in motherhood and fatherhood. And that's why I'm really grateful to Cardinal Dolan for his presence, his fatherly presence. And I invite him to share a few words with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I always, I always appreciate your invitation to the encounter, and I'm uh, unfailingly inspired.
uh, your company, so thank you very much. You're lucky, I think it was about, uh, you escaped a, a, uh, a tough pitch because about six months ago, I was graciously invited to give a talk, at the full-fledged talk at the encounter, and I had to respond, I said, I can't come this year because I have to go to a meeting of um, the, one of the congregations that I'm on as a cardinal in Rome. So I didn't think I'd be able to be with you. And then about uh, a month ago, I got word that because of the reshuffling of the Curia by the Holy Father, the meeting had been postponed. So I was, uh, I'm able to come, but you don't have to listen to me for a full talk. Because uh, all I've been asked to do is give you a, a word of warm welcome, and boy, that I can do exuberantly. I'm grateful, I'm grateful for the company of Brother Bishops. I know Cardinal O'Malley is here. Boy, you can't blame him from getting out, for getting out of Boston, huh? <laughs> Archbishop Gutsiak is here. We were, we're, uh, and we were just together at a, a very moving prayer service on this uh, somber first anniversary of the aggression in Russia. I know that our nuncio, Archbishop Christoph Pierre, is here. I see Bishop Massen. I see, I see Bishop Reika. So it's sure good to be with you, Brother Bishops. Thank you. Now, of all, the, uh, of all the array of reasons for my long admiration for Comunione e Liberazione, one stands out at this annual gathering. You interested? Namely, the charism, the charism of CNL, the insights of Father Giussani, the radiance of this annual encounter display to me an illuminating understanding by you of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, especially in Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes, the teaching of the Council on the relationship, the delicate, sensitive relationship between the church and the world, between the church and culture, between the church and society. Now, to be sure, the Bible warns us about the evils of the world, the evils of culture, the evil of society. You bet there are, we know them well, right? But the Council also ringingly recalls the words of Jesus, calling us to be lights to the world, reminding us that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it that God saved the world so much that he sent us his only begotten son. You all are prophetic in your posture of, yes, challenge to the evils of culture, society, and the world, but also spotlighting the good. It might be an art, poetry, literature, dance, song, music, like that stunning piece we just word. Even such things as economics and politics, history. Thus, this uh, annual encounter is evidence of a productive approach of accompaniment, dialogue, invitation, outreach, cooperation, friendship, welcome, encouragement. Encounter, I suppose, is the best word. All vocabulary, by the way, that's often repeated by Pope Francis. Now, 
New York City needs you. We need this example, you guys. And that's why you're so welcome. New York City needs your example. New York City needs this encounter. So does, by the way, the world. So does the church. So, as a matter of fact, do I. So not only are you welcome, not only am I grateful, but please keep it up. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. And now straight to the religious sense. Uh, we have with us three guests. Now they're being entertained by the cardinal. So. I don't know, I could tell a joke, but I don't know any jokes. Okay, guys, you can come upstairs. So thanks for being here. John Cavadini, director of McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. That was not supposed to happen. <laughs> Father, Father Michael Carville, U.S. Coordinator of Communion Liberation. <laughs> Same as above. And John Zuki, Professor of History at McGill University and translator of the religious sense, which means if you don't like the translation, he's the one to blame. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. And on the Encounter's behalf, I'd like to welcome everybody, those here in the uh, Metropolis Pavilion, and also those following us online. I'd also like to begin by thanking SOMOS for its generous help in organizing this event. I'd like to mention one other item here, that is that this event also introduces The Trunk is Rooted, Where the Truth Lies, an exhibit on, on the self and the other in the life and thought of the servant of God, Father Luigi Giussani. This event is going to be a conversation, what we might call an introduction, an invitation, an encouragement to engage with the religious sense, Father Giussani's seminal work, which has just been released by McGill Queen's University Press in a new and revised version. I'd like to begin with a short, very short story, but when the book was first, uh, or at least when the translation had been completed, we had to find an author, uh, sorry, a, trans, a, tra a publishing company tr to publish the translation. And, uh, and I, I approached uh, McGill Queen's University Press about this, 
and they agreed to, to publish a translation. And I thought this was, well, wonderful, certainly, but it's a standard thing that's done by major university presses to pick up two or three foreign books and, and publish them in English translation. When, Father Giussani, when I met Father Giussani a few months later, he was bowled over by this. He kept asking me, I mean three, perhaps four times, tell me the story of how this all took place. And at the end of that, he said, so you were at the origin of this? I said, no, not really. And he goes, well, was I at the origin of this? And then he said, he was at the origin of this. And that struck me so much because by saying this, he, was, he really put into action what is so key to the religious sense, the fact that appearances tell us of another reality, a deeper reality. And it's in this spirit that we're going to have this conversation today. We want to avoid, obviously, a dry and didactic account of the religious sense. And we're very lucky to have with us today Father Michael and uh, John Cavadini with us because they've engaged so deeply with this book and been touched by this book so deeply. So we're going to have, in a sense, a conversation not with two teachers, as they are, but, uh, but with two human beings who've been, who've been touched by the book, moved by it, by two witnesses, we could say. So if we could begin the conversation, then I'm going to start really with the question of the religious sense itself. I'd like to ask Father Michael, and I don't mean this as a, as a please explain it all question, Father Michael, <laughs> but I'd like this more as an insight to help us in a lifetime's work. You know, from your reading of the book, what is the religious sense? Yeah, I would say that the religious sense is, to put it in just two words and then maybe explore those two words just a little bit, I, I would say that it, it is a, 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 a structural expectation. And by that I mean, by structural I simply mean that it's something that we all have. Just like we have a nose and eyes, a part of who we are as human beings is this expectation. It is part of who we are. It's not a choice. It's not a, an acquired ability or gift. It's something that's simply there. It's a, a structural expectation. And that is that we, as human beings, when we, when we live, when we live the experience of being human, we find that continually within our engagement in the reality that we encounter, when we open our eyes and when we begin to live, we discover that, there's, that, that, that we're after something, that we're not just, we're not just passive expectators, that there's a, there's a powerful dynamic force within our engagement in reality, which is a, 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 an exploration, a search, a, 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 a thirst, a hunger, a wanting to discover something which we don't even, if somebody asked us, what are you looking for? We'd find it hard, and we do find it hard to put it into um, words, but yet we do find, we do know deeply the experience of inadequacy. And that inadequacy, that experience of inadequacy of things comes precisely from this expectation. And the fact that this expectation doesn't get met, it doesn't get met, in the day-to-day -day interaction with things, and therefore it continues forward, forward, looking always 
scanning the horizon, looking for something that might in some way be satisfying. I always think of, I always think of going down to collect the mail. You know, when you go down to collect the mail, and there's a little pile of envelopes on the floor under your mailbox. I don't know if they even do it that way anymore, but that's the way <laughs> I think of it. Um, I don't know, at least for me, there's a little expectation. Might there be a letter there that changes everything? <laughs> might, be, there, might there be a letter there that when I open it, it'll really change things? And to me, that's, that, 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 that reveals in some sense. It's just one little experience that's revealing the fact that in me, as a human being, there's a waiting, there's a wanting, there's a desire, there's a, there's a, there's a, a point of comparison of things, there's a point of evaluation of things by which I rate the things that I encounter. I think I'd leave it with that for the moment and then because I think later on we'll probably have the opportunity to delve further into the way in which this, this expectation uh, grows and, and, and becomes in some way uh, more articulate and more aware in some way, at least of the dimension of what it, it's an expectation for. So, so this, uh, this expectation, as you're saying, it's not just some, some uh, characteristic, it's something structural, you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, by that I mean that it's part of who I am as a human being. I can't get rid of it. And it doesn't matter, it comes before in any consideration of the epoch in which you were born. We can find the, this in the most ancient literature, we can find this in the most distant and diverse cultures. We find it as, as truly something that's human. It's not belong to any category of human. It's belong to the human person per se. That's what I mean by structure. It's us. Yeah. It is ourself. Thank you. Uh, John, you uh, read the religious sense once many years ago, you said, and you read it recently. H how have you understood the religious sense? particularly from the second reading. Yeah. Um, I did read it a, about 12 years ago, and I liked it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I reread it recently. Actually, I reread it on a plane coming home from Italy, appropriately. Um, and it just, it's, it struck me totally differently. It really moved me. Actually, it made me cry, I hate to admit it, when I got to the end. Um, and I was embarrassed because there were a lot of movies, you know, on the, on the airplane that you can kind of see, <laughs> sort of romantic ones, and I was thinking, I'm not crying at that, please, don't think that. <laughs> you can't help it, or, well, anyway. But, but this time, um, being a theologian, what really struck me about the book only the last chapter, really, is about Revelation, which is where I live um, as, a, as a teacher. And the way that the, the whole thing is structured, so to, that, that, that it elaborates the religious sense as, as reasons, awareness of questions, the answer to which it's also aware go beyond reason, so that there's a way in which the human person, like Father was saying, is seeking. But I think what I like about Jastani is that 
he talks about it in terms of reason, and he kind of expands our understanding of reason, so that reason seeks, reason inquires, but reason seeks and inquires on the basis of awareness of human desire, awareness of the desire, he says, for, to explain the meaning of everything. Uh, and that what's beautiful is that he says, so reason becomes aware of something and it becomes aware of the answer as something which transcends reason and that to deny that is irrational. So to deny that reason gets to a point where it becomes aware of an answer that transcends reason is ironically to unsay your own reason, to unsay your own being as reason. And so he talks about, in that last chapter, then he builds up to the possibility, he says, of revelation, um, which was very moving to me. Um, he says that nothing can erase that, the, that, that, um, that possibility. And he brings up Mary, isn't it interesting, right at that point, the Blessed Mother appears in this book right at that point, because she says, how, how can this be? And the angel says, because nothing is impossible with God. And so the Blessed Mother, she remains right there, right open to a possibility she can't fully foresee. And that sort of ongoing personal character of revelation in her whole life is always a, an openness and it never goes away. And if you think about the seven sorrows of Mary, for instance, um, you know, the, the prophecy of Simeon, it's like she was, wow, I mean, virginally conceived, this is gonna be fantastic, what, this great thing is happening. And then all of a sudden, a sword shall pierce your heart, and then the, um, the, um, the flight to Egypt and all the hardships, and then meeting Jesus on the way of the cross, it's like, this isn't going the way I thought it was. In fact, it looks like it's going the wrong way. And imagine taking Jesus down from the cross, dead. It's like, that, now what? That's, but she didn't close off the possibility, right? That God, for God, nothing is impossible, even if you can't see beyond it. Who can see beyond death? And then in that openness, the resurrection quietly sneaks in, in the middle of the night, as something which unexpectedly greets that openness to mystery, um, the possibility of something we hadn't been able to form at all, seemed impossible, and yet it happened, snuck in. I hope you don't think the question's too intimate, but, uh, but what particularly moved you to tears in, in this? Pardon me? What particularly moved you to tears in this? Well, can I read the line? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the last paragraph, but I'm not going to read it all. Um, it's this. The, the hypothesis of revelation cannot be destroyed by any preconception or option. This is the frontier of human dignity. Even if salvation does not come, still, I want to be worthy of it in every instant. That's the last sentence in the book. 
That's what moved me. That it, it all, this whole book is saying that's the religious sense when it, when it, when it, when it comes to its fruition and when we, when we don't block it, it lead, leads to a readiness like that. Even if salvation does not come, still I want to be worthy of it in every instant. That's kind of Marian, isn't it? So another incapacity for, for uh, incapacity for worthiness in our unworthiness, we still desire that worthiness. In it. Right. Even if it doesn't come, there's something like I don't see, you know, what it might be, but I want to be worthy of it in every moment of my life. Thank you. And, and um, Father Michael, what, what in particular struck you in the religious sense? If there's one spot that really or one theme, one spot, one area in the yeah, book that I mean, really struck you. There are an awful lot of things mm. that struck me in the religious sense, and mm. this point of the category of the possible remaining open, for me, is, is, is absolutely the most, in some ways, the most vital thing, which is that, that, you know, to me always, it seems to me that the greatest objection against Christianity is to say it's impossible, that that man there could not be God. It's impossible to shut it down before the consideration of it. And the thing that I find most beautiful and extraordinary in this book is the way in which it so profoundly establishes the, 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 in unreason, the profound unreasonableness, even the violence to our own nature that we have to do to eliminate that possibility, of ca that category of possibility, to say, to say that something is not possible. When I, when I find a cloud over my perception of Christ present in the world, it always sends me back to this. It always sends me back to this. It sends me back to say, first of all, first of all, I can't, I can't, because there's, a, there's, there's moments when you kind of get lost in the small stuff and it just seems, and I see this in the world and I see this with people, sometimes at funerals in the church, I see people just, the idea of the ultimate, the hope of resurrection seems so forlorn and difficult to hold on to in the, when you just look out at the simple and plain things around you. Really? But then, you see, there's a work here. There's a work here which to me is extremely valuable and is, 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 is deeply helpful to me in my personal journey, which is, first of all, to know that everything is possible. That's what you said about the words, of the, 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 the words of the angel to Mary, because everything is possible to God. So the, the openness of that possibility, that, that category of possibility, removes from me a shadow over the whole human experience and allows me to open my eyes and look, and look at what's happened to me in my life and look at the you know, look at my family, look at this movement, look at the church, look at all the things and, 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 and perceive and see what's real, what's real and, 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 and be able to engage in what's real. So for me, I'd say that the, I'd say that the, the most fascinating and the, the, the thing that I hold on to most from this book is that reason demands and reason Reason in some mysterious way is simply us. Reason isn't something I do. Reason is my relationship with the real. It's my relationship with 
what is. You shouldn't think of reason as some kind of box, you know, here's your conscience, here's your reason, here's your stomach, you know. It's, 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 your reason is you in some way. It's you, your engagement. It's your ability to relate to and know and, and, and grasp what's there, what's there. And, and that demands openness. And because that demands openness, the claim of Christ has to be faced. Has to be faced. And I find that totally convincing. And then goes on the work of the claim of Christ and its verification in an experience of life, which is the second book. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want the Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain the encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. It's interesting you're saying this because we, we think of reason as almost often telling us that, that the impossible is impossible. It's reason to tell mm-hmm. us the impossible. But here you're saying that reason tells us the, the impossible is possible. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's right. I do think that's right. Oh. Thank you. I'm going to also move for, uh, to another theme here. I'd like to ask, uh, begin with you, Father Michael, again, uh, on two other key words that, that Father Giussani brings into the religious sense. You know, one of these is experience and closely tied with the, the question of mm-hmm. correspondence. Yeah, yeah. And they're words that, even in the movement, they're often bandied about. We often use them uh, without understanding their, their, their depth, their deep significance. I was wondering if you could help tease out these words for us. Yeah, I think one of the great things that Father Giussani has done for us uh, and in the world of thought in some way, because ultimately I think that this book is a real contribution to the world of thought, to the history of thought, of humanity. Um, Right now we're the people who kind of are invested in it and we know it, but I think it really does deposit something uh, that that has enduring, it makes an enduring contribution. But... I think one of the things that Father Giussani has done, and maybe this in even in a special way in the Catholic um, environment, is he in some way restores the word experience to a real dignity, to a real dignity. And he does that by observing and um, helping us to perceive that experience is the emergence of the real to our human knowing. And therefore, experience is not just things that happen. Experience is things that happen with the conclusions that we can draw from those things that happen, the judgment that we make of those things that happen. And in this way, we find ourselves with something that's, that's profoundly unobjectionable if you think about it. I always come back to Peter outside the synagogue in Capernaum. Will you also leave? Peter had no, Peter wasn't given some authority he could call. He wasn't given some certificate that Jesus had. He wasn't given any method to respond to that question of Jesus other than 
what he had lived and seen and come to know by that living and seeing in those years he'd lived with Christ. So I think that, I think that, I think that experience, when Father Giussani speaks of experience, he's speaking about the, the, the completed work of encounter with reality not just the surface of the sense encounter, but the completed work. When, when the work of an encounter with something real reaches its, full, its fullness in knowledge, in, in awareness, in, in, in a grasp, in a relationship with that reality that you're looking at, that in some way owns it, in some way holds it, in some way makes it its own. So I think that the, I think as regard, I think experience has to be seen as a dynamic of the human person, and I think correspondence is the correspondence is what we it's it's the recognition, it's the recognition, and correspondence goes back to what I said at the beginning um, about. Um, the, uh, uh, about the reality in front of us, and about our uh, j j just our, our, our presence in reality. So, so um, correspondence means that I discovered that that expectation in me responds to the things that I meet, and it has an ability. To, as I, and I said this before, it has an ability to evaluate the things that I meet. It has the ability to say, this is important, this is important, this is not important, this is secondary, this is primary, this is something I must pay attention to, this is something I can put off until tomorrow. Correspondence reveals, is, 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 correspondence is ultimately the encounter with that expectation the encounter between experience and that expectation. But it is the aha, it's the recognition. Um, what, you know, the famous graffiti that Father Giussani sometimes quoted to us, quid animo satis, what can satisfy the soul? Um, what is it? And I go about the world, you know, almost like I have a, a detector, like some sort of a Geiger counter, that when I get close to certain things, it starts going beep, 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 beep. <laughs> you're close now, you're close now. It's like within my humanity, there's this, there's this potential, this ability, this capacity to respond to the reality I encounter and to be moved by it. And being moved by it to be able to perceive and recognize what is, begins to be the answer to that expectation. Um, and it scans all of reality, all of reality, looking, always looking, always expecting, always going to the next thing. Yeah. Thank you. So this, we have this complex then of needs and evidences that we call the human heart. We have reality. We have this correspondence then that we, between the two of you, as you just described. All this obviously so closely uh, so intimately tied to the question of truth and the discovery of truth. And I have a question for uh, you, John. 
you're a university professor, you have a large introductory class on Catholicism, but you teach at all different levels, you meet many students, so, some Catholic, some not, some practicing, some not. This, can this concept this, this, uh, of the, the, this correspondence with the heart, can this be useful for them and for these students? In their, in their question, in their, in their quest for truth? Abs yeah, absolutely. But I find that if you, if you use that language, it doesn't get you very far. Um, because they already think they know what all those words mean. Um, and so if you, <clears throat> if you use that language, they sort of like tune you out. Yeah, I've heard that all before. Um, and so if you, even if you talk about the religious sense, you know, all these students have the religious sense, though they've been taught really to ignore it. Um, but, but if you say, they don't identify it as the religious sense. So they, they have an idea of God. You know, the catechism starts with a natural desire for God, which in a way is the religious sense pointing to that. Um, and sometimes, you know, someone, well, I don't have the desire for God, like, so I proved that wrong. Um, yeah, so right there. And then, but the issue is what, well, what do you think God is? Um, if you think God is, I don't know, a divine harpist sitting on a cloud, calmly observing the affairs of people, well, I don't have a desire for that either. Um, I agree with you. So what is God? And also, what, is, what would the desire for God be? So that if you, you have to un, undo, you have to sneak behind all the ways they, they think they understand the language. I have a kind of stupid way of doing it. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, but um, <laughs> I asked them to think, all right, let's figure out what does this word God mean? Um, so let's, let's just, how about something? I know you all watch B-movies, and they all do. Um, how about Godzilla? How's that for a candidate? <laughs> um, and so Godzilla's kind of big, and in the movies, he's kind of got a heart. You know, he's frustrated, but... <laughs> and so you feel a little bit for him. So what would be something big enough for you to call God? Would it be Godzilla times two? Um, no. Godzilla times four, how about that? How about Godzilla squared? Ooh. <laughs> um, and they're all like pre-professional and whatever. So what about Avogadro's number of gods? <laughs> Which is a really big number. So they get the point, right? In the end, it's, you don't you do it by adding. Um, so it's like if you put Godzilla on the board, you can very cleverly erase the Zilla. <laughs> and what's left is God. Um, which... So you get at the idea of transcendence, something that's big, you could say, or great, not just because it adds, not just because it's something finite that gets bigger and bigger within, not something that within this world, but something that transcends it. So you begin to get them to be aware of something. Is that what you mean by God? Well, yeah, but still I don't have the desire for it, whatever. So, so then it's because, like you said, they think of, like they think of reason, but they think of the desire for God, well, that's gotta be some, like I gotta locate it. 
I know that I know that I have the desire for food. I know that I have the desire for love. Um, and to get them somehow to see that implicit in all these desires, like running with them, um, in every one of them, there's the, there's the desire for something that transcends those. Like, even if you've had Thanksgiving dinner, the word hunger doesn't entirely lose its meaning. You're still hungry for something. But what is that something? Um, it's, could we say it's the desire for meaning? This is what Yasani says. And that does click. Um, because it's, 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 it's lodged within all of our desires, which even when they're satisfied, what does it all mean? And if they put those two things together, right? Meaning, or the question of meaning, orders me to Godzilla without the Zilla. Um, it, it gets somewhere, and therefore, to say that's the religious sense, right? You found it, that's what it is, but you have to help them name it. Otherwise, they think you're just talking about trying to force themselves, um, like Groucho Marx in A Night at the Opera, trying to force himself to like the opera. Um, <laughs> trying to force yourself to like an old man sitting on a cloud. We just heard that beautiful second movement of the Schubert uh, trio, you know, uh, uh, exquisitely played before by, the, by this trio. And, and there's that line from Father Giussani that was read at the, at the introduction where he said, yeah, discovering a beautiful melody, we want nothing else, that we have an intuition of the hereafter. You know, that, that, uh, um, in other words, there's an intuition of the hereafter in, in a beautiful melody. Certainly the students can at least uh, have uh, uh, some sense of that experience, of what that experience of correspondence means. In, in other words, is it possible for them, through something that they are living or have lived, that they can understand what this correspondence refers to that, that can give us a certainty regarding truth? Yeah. Um, that's a, it's a, it's a really excellent example. The example of, of music, because you can, it's the example of beauty, right? You're hearing something beautiful, and in that moment, it seems like that's all you want. Um, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of ways, you know, Giussani calls them um, pre, preconceptions. There's a lot of preconceptions you can use, you know, outside of that moment to dodge it. Like, well, beauty is just, I don't know, it's just, it's just something subjective. It isn't anything out there. They've all been taught these things. Um, so in order to counteract that, sometimes I wear a flower to class, a carnation. They're like, whoa, what's that for? I said, what's what for? Like, well, that in your lapel. I said, well, what is that? It's just a piece of matter, right? That's all it is. It's just, it's just um, whatever. And they say, no, it's a flower. I said, why did you wear a flower today? Like, they all think I'm crazy. <laughs> so I said, it's... I thought you were, I, th I thought just the other day you were saying this is, all this could be is just a piece of matter, energy, interacting. So look, I'll take this flower out of my, and I take it out of my lapel, I slam it on the floor, and I step on it. <laughs> and they're absolutely horrified. 
And one time I did this, and the floor was a little slippery. <laughs> and I, like, slipped on the flower that I had just stepped on. I didn't entirely fall, so I, I, I halfway kept my dignity. <laughs> but I said, why were you horrified? I just stepped on a piece of matter. But just, you said that's what it was. And all, something was violated, right, in that moment that they can see can't simply, they don't want to and simply explain it reductively. Great, thank you, great example. The theme of this year, you know, who am I, who am I that you care for me? And then we have this, you know, this, uh, this current exhibit also entitled, uh, uh, having the same title, and this, and this uh, encounter right now, is, this event right now is entitled, Who Am I? Is it possible, I don't say to respond to this question, but even to understand the terms of, the, of this question without reference to the religious sense? I, either, either one of you can <laughs> begin. I mean, I think that, I think just to ask this question is already to begin to engage with the religious sense. And I think you have to come back to that beautiful word, beauty. Excuse me for the tautology, but that beautiful word, beauty, because that, be that word beauty it already expresses something absolutely extraordinary that's going on in the experience of being a human being. The word beauty, the fact that the word beauty even exists is already a very, very powerful evidence that there is in the human being. I mean, it brings the elements that you, spoke, you asked me about earlier together, experience and correspondence because it's the, it's the fact that, um, it's the fact that there is reality perceived as attractiveness. And to me, that's, that's a fundamental source of this question. Who are you that you care for me? Who, who why, why is, why is the world so beautiful? Why, why does the world touch my heart so much? Why does it beckon me so much? Why do I, on so many times, I look out and I see this beautiful world? And by beauty, I don't mean necessarily just the Grand Canyon or, you know, an ocean scene, but I also mean this, 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 2,000, or I don't know how many people are in this room now, but gathered here for this event and all the things, the event we had last night, the music we just had now, Beauty, beauty, why is reality so enticing? Why do I want to live forever? What is it? What is it that would make me, that, that maybe sometimes when I do look at the beautiful ocean scene and I turn away, there's a, there's a hint of sadness. There's a hint of sadness because um, I have to turn away, I have to go have to turn away from that and go back to other things. Why is it that there's, there's this, why is reality so attractive? Why is reality, why is there a given something so profoundly attractive? And who are you who give it to me? You know? I mean, I always, I, I always ask my classes, I say, if you come into the house back from work and there's 
a big bunch of flowers on the table, what's the first thing you do? What's the very first thing you do? You say, oh, they're beautiful flowers. Even before that, you do something else. You rummage among the leaves. Where's, the little, <laughs> where's that little card? You pull out the little card. Ah, <laughs> yeah, okay. And you put it down. And then you begin, you display the flowers. You put them in a belle vase. You put them out where you want them in the house. Who are you? I think that you, that, that the emergence of that you in the human experience is, is betrays, it betrays in the sense it reveals, I should say reveals, it reveals, it reveals the religious sense, it reveals the fact that, um, you know, I, I, always remember, I always remember a story when I was in the working world, I had a colleague and we used to sometimes go down to a computer center together to do some work. And um, sometimes he drives, sometimes I drive. He was radically atheist, and he always had new arguments for his atheism. I remember coasting up to, uh, towards a green light and him just gripping the steering wheel and saying, stay green, stay green, stay green. And I said to him, hey, Kevin, who are you talking to? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, who are you talking to? You know, we talk to the real because we, we perceive, we can't help but perceive the real as responsive to us as, as another. Yeah. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Oh, thank you. It's, it's interesting how yeah, you perceive the real as you put it. I was, uh, John before he spoke about how he was moved by the book. The other day reading the, the, this book, again, I, I was chapter 10, I was, I was in tears again reading that section precisely on this where, we, where Giussani says that we become aware of the real and then of faces and things and then of our I, of ourselves, you know, that we begin to say I in that sense there. Uh, John, how about you? What, what, do you think it's possible to answer that question, you know, who am I ultimately? Who am I that you care for me? without this reference to the religious sense? In other words, is it simply a philosophical question or is, it, or can it, or, or is, is this religious sense absolutely necessary for, 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 for understanding the terms of the question? Uh, yeah, I would, I would have to say yes. I would first of all underscore everything that Father Michael said. Um, and and maybe, I can, maybe I can also help help you understand why this last chapter moved me so much and still does now. Um, because it has to do with the you, right? Like you said. It has to do with the, the you. The you is that irreducible word, if you really mean it. It can't be reduced to anything but itself. But the way that he does it in that last chapter, he's built up the whole book so that reason, if it's true to itself, asks all these questions about meaning, etc. And if it's true to itself, becomes aware in that asking of an answer which is larger than itself, which transcends itself. And 
And it's in that last chapter that after he's built all this up, that then he says, so we interpret that most successfully, if we're honest, with the word mystery. And so, that, so that's a religious sense is a sense ultimately of the answer to our questions is something which transcends us and that that, and that, that, that's what, that constitutes mystery. So if you're truly rational, true to your rationality, you'd be aware of, some, some, of reality as ultimately a mystery. Step one. But then step two, so that, that he says is, you could say natural revelation, that the cosmos re reveals itself to reason as mystery. But then, what if that were to talk to you? What if that all of a sudden were to say, I love you, like whisper it to you, or something? Then you've got revelation, strictly speaking, that some, all of a sudden, this mystery has a voice and it has a name, Father. He uses the name Father. And then you, so that in the, in the thing, who am I, um, that you care for me, all of a sudden in that moment, you're a you. This thing I've been, like, I didn't realize you were a you. I thought, Mr. but then to realize that that's a you, that thing that you've been ordered to, and that that thing cares about you, and that it's a person, Father, that's the moment where you really fully understand who you are and, and the meaning of your life. It's that this person cared about me. And yet, as Jasani says, the fact that it can be named and understood in that sense only deepens the mystery. So it doesn't, in a sense, collapse the mystery of who am I, but it, it, opens, it opens me to an identity that I could never have imagined for myself or given myself, and yet in the moment that it's given, all you can do is say thank you, like a million times thank you for caring about me. And may I live every moment, whether salvation comes or not, as though I were worthy of it. Mm. Thank you. Of you. Thanks, John, thank you. And as you, you know, when you say this, you know, you, again, you bring me back to chapter 10, I think, uh, once again, you know, this, this um, you know, that, that, I think of our own human condition now, where we think, in particular with technology, but not only with technology, we think we are so much in control of everything, you know, and in front of this you, one of the great discoveries Father Giussani points out in chapter 10, is that we depend, you know, that we, we depend on, 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 on another ultimately, that, that, that we depend on someone else. I'd like to ask, I'll begin with Father Michael, why, why, is, why for Father Giussani is this awareness that we belong such a fundamental aspect of life? I mean, I'd say a couple of things, but the first thing I'd say is because it's a fact. Because it's, uh, I think, First, it's a testimony in some way. It's a testimony of his in some way. Um, he wants to propose this. Um, the other thing, though, is if, if we don't belong, then, excuse me, but 
what the hell are we? What on earth is this creature me? What on earth am I? What on earth is this, all this reality about? It becomes, it becomes completely impenetrable. Reality becomes completely impenetrable without this recognition that of its nature is something that, you know, I mean, Father Giussani in the book gives us this thought experiment, so to speak, of the person who has all the awareness and critical capabilities that we've acquired in a life of experience, but you open your eyes for the very first time like a baby coming out of the womb on reality, and he says, what's the first thing? What's the first perception? And the first perception is things. The first perception is reality. The first perception is something that is given. Something that is given. That, 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 that you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the, in the complexity of thoughts, but the simplest mind on front of the phenomenon of reality has to perceive it as gift, as given. Um, what was, what's the question again? Sorry, if you don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, uh, yeah. Do I have to look it up? <laughs> no, no, just just the, the last little bit. You, you. No, is, is this, is, why, why for Father Giussani is dependency oh, yeah. why so fundamental? Do, yeah. Uh, yeah. Why is the, why is the recognition of dependence yeah. so important yeah. for Father Giussani? Mm. I think it's because it is, Father Giussani perceives that the human, the nature of human reason as need to, need to know the reality in which we find ourselves, the, the quest to comprehend and understand. You know, if there's some strange object on the table there that does, has, seems to have nothing to do with this meeting, I can't help but, maybe I'm sitting back here trying to ignore it, but I'm saying, what the hell is that? What's that? What's that? What's that thing there? I wonder what that's doing there, right? The unknown just beckons. Reason is, is, has this, this all-pervasive, all-invasive power to, to want to know without the perception that we belong you can get nowhere. The, the knowing process can get nowhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that, that's, the, that's the answer. Yeah, I just, I'm actually interested in this, this relationship between this, the, the, what you were saying, this, this um, fact that we depend and the, what you said, what you call the impenetrability of reality yeah. without that dependence. Why do you say this? Because I say that uh, it, it, what, what is being, what is being, what is stuff, what is, you know, I always think of the, I always think that the, this verb to be, the verb to be designates an action, an action, like I'm sitting, and that describes an ongoing condition in which I am right now, and this being is this ongoing reality of, 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 that I'm in, that I'm, that, 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 that I'm doing. What is it? What is it? Um, how can you begin to grapple with an understanding of reality? So, you know, 
you can, you can, in some sense, human beings in front of reality in some way kind of re reverse engineer. We're always reverse engineering. We're always kind of pulling it apart and digging deeper and deeper in. Then the next question we dis, we dis, we de, uh, we reverse engineer everything, po, 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 trying to get back through the phenomenon to its origin in some way, mm. right? Um, and it's it's that because yeah, there, there, there's there's a, there's a historic, philosophical, and history of thought process of that journey. But the person who faces reality straight away is already confronted immediately with that what? What? And yeah, yeah, I love it. Thank you. Thank you. And John, I'd like to go right back to that question before about, or that issue I brought up before this, this, this control that we always want to have over our lives. Somehow we see ourselves as the source of our own happiness. And we, you know, we, I, I'm sure you see it in students, but we see it in adults, we see it in the elderly, we see it in everyone, Catholic, non-Catholic, non-religious. Every, uh, everyone seems to share in this. Is it still possible today, and I'm thinking now in particular about your students, is it still possible for them to discover a a vulnerability that opens them up to this recognition that they ultimately depend, to, have a, to, to discover a new serenity in, 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 a, in understanding that ultimately they depend on another. Yeah, um, my experience of that is, and it's related to what Father Michael said, um, is that students, I mean, they're basically, they're taught they have to rely on themselves. And they're taught that what, what matters is their achievements. And therefore, they're, they're very anxious. Most of them live, with it, it's kind of an anxiety-ridden. Am I going to do enough? Am I going to get this job? Am I going to get this enough prestigious of a job, et cetera? Um, if you scratch beneath the surface of that anxiety, you find an incredible vulnerability. Um, and I think, remember, Giussani talks about the, communi the, communi the communitarian dimension um, he says it's very difficult to get to that level of vulnerability because it means taking a risk. Um, it means acting on what you've perceived. And it's the community dimension that helps you take that risk. And so students, I think, you can, if you scratch just that surface, and even, you can't say it this way, but help them identify this anxiety, but you can't say it like that. But still, um, that what that at bottom is, is they don't want to take any risks, right? Because they're afraid to take a risk, because they're afraid that if they take a risk, they won't get an A, to put it bluntly. Um, so they don't want to do anything new, they don't want to, therefore, what, what you need in order to help them get farther is that community dimension. Like, there's gonna be someone to help you. There's gonna be someone to catch you. Like, you're not actually by yourself. There is, if you're, there is a network of help, and I think you have to be willing to be that help, or, because it doesn't do any good to point it out philosophically. But as Jasani says, it's when somebody, when somebody offers to help you, that you all of a sudden think, wow, maybe, 
maybe I could take that seriously. And this vulnerability that I'm hiding um, can, can go somewhere. And of course, ultimately, that requires a sense that somebody else larger is, is taking care of you. But that's the second step. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to move on to, to another uh, question, which is that of chapter 9. Well, one could say chapter 6 to 9. Uh, it's all on ideology and preconception. And, uh, you know, we seem to draw ideas of what the uh, good life is, you know, uh, uh, what success means, ideas about our bodies, our ideas regarding uh, gender equality, diversity, from images that are sent to us you know, by the world, let's say, uh, by what Father Giussani would call the common mentality, by preconceptions that reach us. And Father Giussani says that preconception, I quote, confines itself to the familiar and expected. Why is it these images that come from others end up becoming the familiar and expected? Why is it not, how can I put it, what we, what we desire most, you know, await the most, even if we're not particularly expecting it, but await the most in our deepest, what is, you know, what is deepest in our heart that we really want for our lives? Why is that not the familiar? Why is it always a preconception that is the familiar? We could begin with, uh, John, did you want to start then, that? Um, I would say that it's, it's because to become aware of something for which you, which exceeds, which is your, the answer to your questions, but exceeds reason itself and exceeds you, that's frightening. It's that, and so you, we block it. We've been taught to block it, really. I think looking at my students, they, they've been sold a bill of goods and a mess of pottage for their birthright. They've been taught to block it. And so, because it's, it doesn't require taking the risk that being true to this awareness does require. So we, it's like Mary, that's why she shows up in that text. The most unimaginable thing was announced to her and she didn't block it. She was open to it. And that meant open to all the, all the sorrows, and yet to something that transcended all of them. Yeah. I, think, I, think that, I think that to hold the original position of the human being is profoundly dramatic. The more you live, the more you look, and the more you experience the real, the more you realize that there's a, there's, a profound, there's a profound drama in living the real, in that you don't find, you know, the, the answer to my need, the answer to my heart is not in the mall, it's not something I can make in the workshop, it's not something that's been invented now or next year in the corporations of the world, it's not here. It's not here. So, to, 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 you know, I think it's in chapter 14 that Father Giussani develops this theme of the, the, the painful, vertiginous drama of the human being who knows and, 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 and perceives that there is something. I go back to what I opened up with the expectation. They're, they're, they're expecting something that's not there. It's very, very comfortable. 
as Father Giussani says there in chapter 14, it's very, very comfortable and say, this is it, this is it, this is the answer. My career, my power, my influence, my girlfriend, my money, my, you know. It's very, very easy, both at the individual and at the, soci at the, at the, at the political and social level. It's very, very easy and it's very comfortable to say, let's all agree that this is what we want to pursue. But the heart cries. The heart ultimately cries and we become people that live a quiet desperation. Because even though we've all kind of come up with this conspiracy in the world that this is what we're after, somewhere inside we know it's not. And that no, no matter how much we pursue this, it's not going to get there. So I think that, I think that I'd say the reason that we choose those, those identifiable by us familiar solutions is to escape the drama of what it is to be a human being. Thank you. We've, we've had this, this um, discussion today, not, not to explain the book, but to encourage people to read the book uh, from two witnesses who, who grappled with the book. So I really want to thank both of you for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag The New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.